All right, well, wasn't that uh, plenary session great? And uh, I tell people that um, apologetics is a lot more than just knowing answers. It's knowing how to share the truth in such a way that people come to Christ and grow in Christ and their lives are transformed by the truth of Christ. So this evening's uh, session is titled Punching Holes in Recent Atheistic Arguments. I did not come up with that title. I'm not, I'm not that gifted, uh, but um, I, I was talking with Bill Craig about this and I was, I was a little bit frustrated about uh, how atheists tend to stop Christians in their tracks sometimes with stupid things. You know, uh, I, I thought about calling this session uh, Stupid Atheist Tricks <laughs> and, uh, and going down like 10, 9 and, and counting down the list. And, uh, and, and I certainly did not mean, but I thought about that title and it was unclear. People might think I was saying that atheists are stupid. I don't think atheists are stupid. Um, so I, I, I said, that's not going to work. And, and as I got into thinking about it, what I wanted originally it was intending to do was, was just to go through some common sayings that they say or arguments that they make and, and show how they fail. And I, I came to the conclusion that really what we needed to do before that was take a step back and, and do some analysis about how atheists, and particularly the new atheist or contemporary atheist, uh, are, are thinking, and the popular atheists like uh, Richard Dawkins and Daniel Dennett and Christopher Hitchens and Sam Harris and, and uh, also Stephen Hawking, who, while we might not say he's a new atheist, he is, he is a contemporary atheist. And, uh, and so what I would like to do is, is begin with an analysis of their core beliefs and their practices and kind of help you get your head around uh, how they think and where they come from, and then deal with uh, uh, two or three major arguments or, or lines of arguments that we see from the new atheists. So uh, core belief number one would be that science and religion are mutually exclusive ways of looking at life. That uh, you can have science or you can have religion, they're both ways to look at life, but, but you can't blend them together. They're mutually exclusive, and uh, there's a dichotomous relation between them. This view depends upon two modern myths. The first one is what I call the God of the Gaps myth, and the second, the science-religion warfare myth. The God of the Gaps mythology is, uh, the basic idea behind it is that uh, before the development of modern science, people believed in God, because of what they did not know. They believed in God on the basis of ignorance. They didn't understand nature and, and natural phenomenon. And you often hear people say things like, ancient people thought that thunder was Thor pounding his hammer and such things. And, and so uh, they had an, a mythical religious explanation for natural phenomena that we understand now and have understood most of us for quite some time, and at least in some elementary way. Well, many of these statements could be true, but they would also be isolated examples of truth. 
Certainly that's not the, the way that all religions came to be. Certainly it's not uh, the way that revealed religions uh, came to be. And, and anyone who uh, thought about it anthropologically, anthropology was my related field in my, in my doctoral days, would, would pretty quickly realize that, that these explanations are not sufficient, that, that the rise of religion, the prevalence of religion, uh, it calls for a much more sophisticated explanation of that. They would see that it is simply simplistic. I had, a, I had a drinks with a, with a leading uh, agnostic New Testament scholar. I won't mention his name. Uh, I've, I've done one book with him and hope to do another one. Uh, I say we had drinks. He had, he had beer and wine. I had iced tea. Uh, but, but I mix the pink and the blue. And so when you're a Southern Baptist professor, that's a mixed drink. Um, <clears throat> but um, he was telling me that he had been with Richard Dawkins the night before and that they were going to do a, a series of speaking engagements. And, uh, and he said, but you know, Dawkins really doesn't understand religious people. He doesn't understand Christian people in particular. And, uh, and and we would see this would be illustrative of the fact that uh, uh, the God of the gaps explanation of how religion comes to be, uh, simply if we thought, uh, if they don't understand contemporary religious people, they probably are not going to understand ancient religious people any better as well. Now let me mention one thing. When I say the God of the gaps, I'm talking about a God of the gaps mythology. I think it's perfectly capable for contemporary people wrongly to attribute things to God. I've heard Christians do that, where they say, well, what else could it be? And I say, I can think of a number of things that this explanation, explana uh, phenomenon X or phenomenon Y, could be. I don't think that we Christians ought to suspend our rationality uh, simply in the name of, of piety. I, I'm against easy believism. I'm against uh, thoughtless Christianity as, as much as I'm against uh, anti-Christianity. But the other myth is the science and religion warfare mythology. Science and religion are not at war. Certainly science and Christianity are not at war. Some of the greatest, uh, uh, most of the greatest names in the history of science uh, are Christians. If you, if you took the Christians out of the history of science, uh, it would be a much shorter history and we would have a lot less science uh, without them. In fact, the Christian view of the world that God is a rational being who has created an orderly world that can be understood by people made in His image is foundational uh, to the roots and the history of contemporary science. But often you'll hear people talk about uh, Galileo or the Scopes trial and, and not put the whole story in context. Sometimes they don't know the story because they've accepted the myth and they're genuinely passing it on as they think it is. Uh, but many times they just get it wrong. For instance, Galileo was never tortured. His life was never threatened. He was sentenced to home arrest. Uh, uh, the main reason he went on trial was uh, because he wrote a, a fictitious uh, work in which he offended the Pope, who had been one of his biggest supporters up until 
that time, but even after he was placed on house arrest, he continued to live a fairly luxurious lifestyle and continue on his work. Moreover, Galileo's theory was not entirely correct. Uh, he was correct uh, that, that the sun moved around the earth, but he thought that the sun did not move, and yet the sun does, science, modern scientists know. In fact, uh, I've got a quotation here from, uh, from an agnostic uh, uh, scholar in the history of science and philosopher, uh, Ronald Numbers. He says this, there's a powerful mythology today suggesting that science and religion are enemies and it is fueled by some of the most public and popular of scientists, such as the late Carl Sagan in the United States or Richard Dawkins in Great Britain, who have gone out of their way on occasions to present that view. And so we see that there, there are some powerful myths working behind uh, contemporary atheism. A second uh, core belief is that faith is a superstitious blind leap based on the denial of evidence. So they understand faith uh, in a particular way. Richard Dawkins said this, he said, faith is the great cop-out, the great excuse to evade the need to think and evaluate evidence. Faith is belief in spite of, even perhaps because of, the lack of evidence. Christopher Hitchens said this, what can be asserted without proof can be dismissed without proof. Now, it's a little unclear what, what Hitchens means by proof, but in context, what I think he means is, uh, is that we don't have reasons to support our beliefs. And uh, I think I don't know any serious Christian who thinks that's a good definition of faith, or that's the reason that Christians believe what they believe. Then third, religion is inherently evil. It poisons everything it touches. And of course, Christopher Hitchens has entitled his best-selling book, God is Not Great, Why Religion Poisons Everything That It Touches, or uh, consider this, uh, the. Nobel Prize winning scientist Steven Weinberg. He says this, with or without religion, you would have good people doing good things and evil people doing evil things. But for good people to do evil things, that takes religion. Theoretical physicist uh, Freeman Dyson responded uh, to this statement in his New York Review of Books article by saying, and for bad people to do good things, that also takes religion. <laughs> Frequently, atheists will point to the fact that at least some secular nations seemingly have less crime than the more religious nations do. Essentially, their argument boils down to saying that secular people are better citizens than religious people are. But is this true? We frequently will hear uh, uh, offhand stories or, or personal narratives or statements like, well, everybody knows. And they'll talk about things like the Crusades without going into the history and context of the Crusades and, and life back then and so forth and so on. But is it true? Well, let's consider what we can thank Christian people for. 
Well, we can think of, thank them for at least three things in our context. Number one would be hospitals, number two, education, and number three, democracy. Let's look at some statistics here. In America, as of 1999, 13% of all hospitals were religious hospitals. That's uh, totaling 18% of all hospital beds. That's 604 out of 4,500 plus hospitals. Now some might say, well, that's, that's not really very many. You know, it's less than 20% for all the money that, that goes into religion and so forth. But consider this. Public hospitals are not quote-unquote secular hospitals. They're paid for by taxes. And religious people pay taxes just like non-religious people. In fact, the fact that there are more people who are religious than non-religious means that religious people pay most of the taxes that pay for all of the public hospitals. And then over and above paying for most of the public hospitals, they go ahead and pay for the private hospitals on top of that. Or education. Consider this, the Sorbonne, Oxford, Cambridge, St. Andrews were all begun by Christians, as were Harvard, Yale, and Princeton. All but two of the first 108 American universities were Christian universities. Well, what does the hard data tell us about citizenship? Well, it's interesting that, uh, that we have some really good data that's contemporary. In 2000, they began the Social Capital Community Benchmark Survey, sponsored by three dozen community foundations, the Roper Center for Public Opinion Research, the Cigarro Seminar of the John F. Kennedy School of Government at Harvard University, and this was the largest survey ever of Americans about civic engagement. And the purpose of, of, the, uh, of this uh, survey, which is a huge survey, lots and lots of data, was to find out how well we related to each other, worked with each other, contributed uh, to make each other's lives better, how well we lived in community. And this was, the data was summarized by Syracuse University professor Arthur Brooks in an article, Religious Faith and Charitable Giving, published in the journal Policy Review, which is pu published by the, uh, by the 700 Club. No, it's not. It's published by the Hoover Institution on War, Revolution, and Peace at Stanford University. Uh, so, so these are not flaming fundamentalist Christian groups cooking the books, okay? And Brooks divided the respondents into three groups. The 33% who said they attended religious services every week or more often, he designated as religious. The 26% who reported attending religious services less than a few times per year or explicitly saying they had no religion, he designated as secular, which I think really is giving a little bit too much to the secular definition, but nevertheless, um, they weren't, they weren't uh, Billy Graham's or the Pope's best men. Uh, those who practiced their religion occasionally made up the remaining 41%. And what he found was religious people are 25 percentage points more likely than secular people to donate money, 91% to 66%. 23 points more likely uh, to volunteer time, 67% to 44%. 
In real dollars, this translates into an average annual giving of $2,010 per person among the religious as opposed to $642 among the secular. Religious people volunteer an average of 12 times per year as opposed to an average of 5.8 times per year for secular people. Religious people make up 33% of the population as, as Brooks is, is charting it. It's higher than that overall, I believe, uh, but he's not counting all the religious people. So these are the uh, truly faithful religious, 33% of the population, but they're responsible for 52% of the money donated and 45% of the time volunteered. Secular people make up 26% of the population, but contribute only 13% of the money and 17% of the time volunteered. Lest anyone think that all the time and money given by religious people is given to and through religious institutions, the study relates to giving to non-religious charities as well. Religious people are 10 points more likely to give to non-religious causes than are secular people, and 21 points more likely to volunteer for non-religious causes than secular people. So they're giving to their churches and their synagogues and their houses of faith and those ministries and giving above and beyond that. Well, what about this idea that religious people are violent, uh, crazed, genocidal, mass murderers? R.J. Rommel, professor emeritus of political science at the University of Hawaii, he also taught at Yale University and Indiana University, uh, not exactly Christian hotbeds. Um, he's done more work in this area than, than probably anyone living. Uh, he's rumored to be a Nobel Peace Prize nominee, but uh, nobody but a very select few actually know who are, who are nominated and don't win. Uh, for nearly 50 years, he focuses research on the causes and conditions of collective violence and war with a view toward helping their resolution or elimination, and he published uh, his magnum opus five-volume Understanding Conflict and War. And you can see all of this information at the website below. And I will send this PowerPoint to any of you who emails it to me and asks me for it. Uh, I'll be happy to send it to you. I may put it up on, on the web and uh, uh, just let you download it. Um, here's what he said about uh, years and years of studying genocide. Democide is, is a term that he created uh, to be wider than genocide. Genocide has to do with a particular ethnic group or a particular religious group. He studied just mass murder uh, across the board, and so he came up with this democide term. He says, collecting data on democide was a horrendous task. I was soon overwhelmed by the unbelievable repetitiveness of regime after regime, ruler after ruler, murdering people under their control or rule by shooting, burial, burial alive, burning, hanging, knifing, starvation, flaying, beating, torture, and so on and on, year after year. Not hundreds, not thousands, not tens of thousands of these people, but millions and millions. Almost 170 million of them and this is only what appears a reasonable middle estimate, the awful toll may even reach above 300 million, the equivalent in debt of a nuclear war stretched out over decades. Here's what he found. 3% of pre-20th century democide was primarily motivated by religious beliefs. 
less than 2% of 20th century democide was primarily motivated by religious beliefs. What motivates democide? The desire for power. What is the solution? His answer, democracy. How is freedom grounded? We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Or, in the words of Saint Nietzsche, another Christian concept no less crazy, has passed even more deeply into the tissue of modernity, the concept of the equality of souls before God. This concept furnishes the prototype of all theories of equal rights. Mankind was first taught to stammer the proposition of equality in a religious context, and only later was it made into morality. Friedrich Nietzsche, The Will to Power. You have to understand in Nietzsche's twisted mind, that's a bad thing. But for sane people, it's a good thing. So let's look at the characteristic practices beyond their core beliefs that science and religion are mutually exclusive, that faith is a simply a superstitious leap of blind faith uh, without evidence, without support, and that religion is inherently evil. How, what are their practices? Number one, anti-religious rhetoric. I realized uh, just how true this was when I, uh, I wrote an article for a book that Paul Copan and, and Jeremy Evans and Heath Thomas have recently edited uh, for InterVarsity Press, and I was asked to, uh, to write an, ar an article on their arguments from Old Testament holy war uh, for atheism. So I read their books and I didn't find any arguments as a philosopher would recognize an argument. Now, let me be clear what I'm saying. I found a lot of Bible bashing. I found a lot of inflammatory statements. I found a lot of uh, horrendous, truthful statements, uh, some of them. We, I think we do have, as Christians, to say, uh, you know, we have a, a fair amount of sin in our own lives. But, you know, Christianity, the Bible tells us we're going to. You know, one way to disprove the Christian worldview would be if we all became sinless. Uh, because the scripture says we're not going to this side uh, of heaven. So I, I found, but what I found if when I didn't find arguments was I found a lot of rhetoric. You know, there are three ways to persuade people. One way is evidence, another way is argument. And by argument, I don't mean getting red in the face and raising your voice. I mean putting sentences together to form a coherent, valid uh, argument that, uh, that leads to a conclusion that is rational to believe. And the other is rhetoric. Rhetoric can be good or rhetoric can be bad. Rhetoric can be based on evidence and reason or rhetoric can simply be manipulative and catch people off guard. I found something that looked a whole lot like political rhetoric. I teach logic, at the, and one of the jobs I do at the seminary is teach logic, and, and I love to teach logic in an election year. It's like the happy hunting ground for informal fallacies. <laughs> you know, I, it, it really makes me concerned when I look at uh, the rhetoric of the people we elect. Um, 
but uh, that's what I found. It was like preaching to the choir. It was like the extremes of the right and the left. And and I don't need to name names or put faces with, with these sorts of people. Secondly, a superficial knowledge of the Bible. Interestingly enough, every atheist I've ever met has been quick to tell me, I've read the Bible. I know the Bible. Most of the time, I don't believe them. And I, it's not that I don't believe they've ever picked up a Bible. It's not that I don't believe they've ever uh, read parts of the Bible. They may have even uh, read through the Bible on a you know, three-chapter-a-day reading plan, something like that. But that's not knowing the Bible. Okay? Now, there are some atheists that know the Bible. And there's some agnostics who know the Bible. Bart Ehrman would be a very good example of an agnostic uh, that knows the Bible. Uh, William Rowe, a former Methodist preacher who's now uh, an atheist philosophy professor, uh, knows the Bible. I'm not saying there aren't any out there, but I'm saying a lot more people say they've read the Bible than have. As a matter of fact, a lot more Christians say they've read the Bible and know the Bible than actually have. So, so we don't have much to uh, hang our hat on there. But I had an interesting example of this. Uh, when Daniel Dennett was uh, part of the Greer Herd Forum, and uh, I found Dennett to be a wonderful guy, interesting, brilliant, um, easy to listen to. And uh, he found me to be a great guy. And uh, he really liked Southern Baptist. He couldn't believe how well we treated him. I don't know what he thought we were, you know, we were all going to line up on the campus with guns, you know, when he, when he came in or something. Uh, but... Um, he, he didn't realize that Baptists believe in persuasion, but have, have died historically. Numerous Baptists have died for the religious rights of others with whom we disagree. And, uh, and so we're out at dinner in five-star restaurant, Emeralds in New Orleans. Yeah, be jealous. Um, <laughs> and he was complimenting me on how well it had gone. And, and I said, well, you know, Dan, I really am an evangelical Christian. And I really would like everybody to give their life to Jesus Christ, even you. And he went on this long soliloquy about how he was a Darwinist first and an atheist second. He says, I'm an atheist because I think Darwinism leads to atheism, that it undermines the worldview, uh, uh, religious worldview. And that's the point of his book, Darwin's Dangerous Idea. He said, but you know, there are a lot of different theories about Darwin the man, and I'm not into the quest of the historical Darwin. And uh, he said, I don't care about Darwin's personal life. I just want people to read uh, The Origin of Species, or The Sin of Man, read Darwin's thoughts. They're brilliant, and everyone would benefit from doing this. And then he said, why can't you Christians be that way with Jesus? Not make him the issue, just he had good things to say and read that stuff. And, and I said, well, Dan, the, the problem is that Jesus was the one who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but by me. And it was like I'd taken out a two-by-four and gone, whoop, right between the eyes. It, and he just had this startled look. And I had a moment there. And then one of my colleagues chimed in with, yeah, and besides that, Christianity is not a religion. It's a relationship. Now, I understand what that 
trite truism is getting at. That there's something different about the Christian religion than, than other religions. But when you look at Christianity anthropologically, it's a religion. It walks like a duck, it quacks like a duck, it lays an egg like a duck, it's a duck, okay? And that just turned it off. There was, there was no moment there. Brothers and sisters, we can't be satisfied with trite, superficial, one level deep answers to deep involved human problems. And, uh, and we better not be guilty of doing uh, lazy, superficial apologetics. But they have a superficial knowledge of the Bible, at least many of them. They have a superficial knowledge of theology. Let's see what Richard Dawkins says on this point. He says this, I have yet to see any good reason to suppose that theology, as opposed to biblical history, literature, etc., is a subject at all. I would love to deal with that for, long, for a longer period of time, but I'm just going to, to leave it out there as demonstration uh, that he really doesn't know what he's talking about. We see this very clearly from the literary critic, Terry Eagleton, in his uh, response to Dawkins. Now, Eagleton is certainly not an evangelical Christian, uh, but he is a world-renowned literary scholar. He says this, Dawkins speaks scoffingly of a personal God as though it were entirely obvious exactly what this might mean. He seems to imagine God, if not exactly with a white beard, then at least as some kind of chap, however supersized. He asks how this chap can speak to billions of people simultaneously, which is rather like wondering why if Tony Blair is an octopus, he has only two arms. For Judeo-Christianity, God is not a person in the sense that Al Gore arguably is. <laughs> Nor is he a principle, an entity, or existent. In one sense of the word, it would be perfectly coherent for religious types to claim that God does not in fact exist. He is rather the condition or possibility of any entity whatsoever, including ourselves. He is the answer to why there is something rather than nothing. God and the universe do not add up to two any more than my envy and my left foot constitute a pair of objects. What Eagleton is saying in, in logical terms is that Dawkins is, has committed a category mistake in confusing. I think Dawkins is maybe thinking about God like, uh, like the Jim Carrey movie where, where he had the powers of God and, and uh, so forth. And nevertheless... Here's, here's what he said at Yale University in his Terry lectures. All I can claim in this respect, alas, is that I think I may know just about enough theology to be able to spot when someone like Richard Dawkins or Christopher Hitchens, a couplet I shall henceforth reduce for convenience to the solitary signifier Ditchkins, <laughs> is talking out of the back of his neck. Typically, atheists are not concerned to know deep theology. As a matter of fact, when you read through the, through the God-makers, uh, it's obvious that Dawkins has heard some good theology because then he wants to say, but that's not the normal theology or uh, that's an unusual strain, these sorts of things. Next is materialism. Although, um, materialism, okay. 
uh, I need to back up. Materialism. By and large, a new atheist or thoroughgoing materialist, what philosophers refer to as eliminative materialists. That means they don't accept any realities beyond the physical. Thus, they deny not only God, angels, demons, that sort of thing, the soul. They also deny the mind as being something other than the brain. And so our, our thoughts are all caused by... Uh, by electrochemical reactions. Basically, it leads to metaphysical determinism. And this causes them numerous problems. So many of them will deny free will. But this undermines uh, rationality, and it undermines relationality. And, uh, but they are, many of them, thoroughgoing materialists. And then there's a religion-like sociology. You remember I talked about Dan Dennett and Christianity. I said, don't say silly things like Christianity's not a religion. But from an anthropological standpoint, atheism can look a lot like a religion too. Now, please understand what I'm not saying. I'm not saying this line about it takes more faith to be an atheist than to be a Christian. You know, that one really makes atheists mad. If you want to say it uh, and, and then run, go ahead. And, and, but, you know, I, I don't know that we're going to get very far uh, with that particular line in real-life dialogue with real-life atheists. But uh, what I'm looking at is the phenomena of atheism, anthropologically. Atheism has many of the markings of a religion. It has a controlling story or a myth. The universe is all there ever was, ever will be. Life comes after long periods of, of deep time as the accidental combination of, of elements through natural selection, random mutation. We've gotten to the point that we are. They have their revered writings. They have their saints, Marx, Freud, Nietzsche. They have their saints, uh, Darwin. They have holy days like Darwin Day. They have communal groups. Uh, I, I've spoke at the New Orleans Secular Humanist Association. As a matter of fact, I, I frequent their events. Um, and uh, it's amazing how much a Nosha meeting is sort of like a Baptist meeting without, they take offerings. <laughs> they just don't have good music. Um, <laughs> They even have spiritual practices. Look at this. Although this is from the website naturalism.org, and they have numerous forms. Although naturalism may at first sight seem an unlikely basis for spirituality, a naturalistic vision of ourselves and the world can inspire and inform spiritual experience. Naturalism understands such experience as psychological states constituted by the activity of our brains, but this doesn't lessen the appeal of such experience or render it less profound. Appreciating the fact of our complete inclusion in nature can generate feelings of connection and meaning that rival those offered by traditional religions. And those feelings reflect the empirical reality of our being at home in the cosmos. So we can look at the natural world and get a good feeling. Sounds suspiciously like idolatry. And even self-worship when we wire ourselves into it all and we're connected. Well, let me look at a couple of... Uh, 
recent atheistic publications. First, I want to look at the one that Bill Craig's talking about in more depth uh, next door, and that would be Stephen Hawking and Leonard Mladenow's new book, uh, The Grand Design. How many of you have seen this book? You perhaps purchased it? it sitting on your coffee table. It's kind of a coffee table looking book. It's beautiful pictures and, uh, and really expensive paper. And uh, there, now, I mean, don't, don't you love pages that just feel good in your hand? And I mean, and, and there's a wealth of good information, exciting stuff. This is a well-written uh, book. Uh, you know, good authors, good prose. Uh, there's a lot to like in it. Well, who is Stephen Hawking? If you don't know, uh, well, he's a world-renowned theoretical physicist. Until recently, they're not coming for me. Uh, until recently, he was a Lucasian professor of mathematics at Cambridge University. That was the chair Sir Isaac Newton held. Uh, he's a fellow of the Royal Society, and he's a Presidential Medal of Freedom winner. Well, what's all the fuss about with this book? Well, the last page of the book says this. Because there is a law like gravity, the universe can and will create itself out of nothing in the manner described in chapter 6. Basically, he says we don't need God because the universe will create itself. Well, let's look at some important features of the book. Five pages in, we read this. He goes on and he talks about uh, deep things in life. And he says, the deep things, traditionally, these are questions for philosophy, but philosophy is dead. I kind of felt offended when I read that. But he says this, philosophy has not kept up with modern developments in science, particularly physics. Scientists have become the bearers of the torch of discovery in our quest for knowledge. So he says that. But notice this. I was interested in reading, I read through the book and I kept running into philosophers, Thales, Anaximander, Empedocles, Heraclitus, Democritus, Plato, Aristotle, Epicurus, Thomas Aquinas, Rene Descartes, George Barclay, David Hume. Apparently he likes some philosophers. Well, frankly, this is unbelievably simplistic. Furthermore, I'm not sure what it means when he says philosophy has not kept up with modern developments in science. I mean, he, hasn't, he didn't say philosophers. I think he means philosophers. But if he said philosophy, that would be kind of like mathematics can't dribble. Uh, and uh, so if he does mean philosophers have not kept up with science, is that true? Well, yes and no. Some have and some haven't. And the same could be said about scientists, that scientists have not kept up with philosophy, as we're going to see in a moment, at least some of them. But I don't think for that reason that science is dead. As a matter of fact, I'm married to a scientist. And there's a philosopher in the next building who's certainly done a good job keeping up with science, Bill Craig. And there will be others speaking at this conference who have done so as well. Secondly, Hawking has a high regard for scientific law. 
but it works out in a false dichotomy. This is something he said in a newspaper interview. He said, the question is, is the way the universe began chosen by God for reasons we can't understand, or was it determined by a law of science? I believe the second. Well, I believe in scientific law too. You can't get very far without accepting the concept of scientific law, but Hawking has a specialized understanding of scientific law. And we're going to see how that plays out. But what is a scientific law? Well, I'm going to use his definition. This is not where it becomes specialized. I think most people uh, would agree with this. Today, most scientists would say a law of nature is a rule that is based upon an observed regularity and provides predictions that go beyond the immediate situations upon which it is based. That's not controversial. He says this on page 28, in modern science, laws of nature are usually phrased in mathematics. They can be either exact or approximate, but they must have been observed to hold without exception, if not universally, then at least under a stipulated set of conditions. Again, that's not controversial. But Hawking seems to think that an efficient cause excludes any need for a formal cause. Now, an efficient cause, if, if we had, uh, say we were building a house, we would have different types of causes. Now, when we use the word cause, it's, it's a confusing term because there are many types of causes. But, but causes explain why things are the way they are. So there, it's a shorthand term for an explanation, but there are different kinds of explanations. And, and to understand a lot of things, we need more than one type of explanation to have a full explanation. So if we were building a house and someone was to say, well, what's the material cause of the house? Well, it would be bricks and mortar and wood, that sort of thing. If someone, uh, if someone said, well, what's the efficient cause? Well, it would be, uh, it would be the builders, the, the contractors, and, and using instruments, so these would be an instrumental cause, hammers and tools and so forth. If someone said, well, what's the, what's the purpose of the house? That would be a teleological or final cause, it would be a place to have shelter, to live in and to be protected from the elements and so forth. But what's the formal cause? Well, the formal cause is the idea in the mind of the architect, which is a two-story house or a one-story house. It's a ranch house or, or a townhome, that sort of thing. But the idea is fundamental because from the idea comes the blueprint, which gives the directions to the contractors. You can't have a full explanation of why the house is there simply by saying the contractors did it. You've got wood and mortar and brick and builders. That's not a satisfying explanation. Hawking seems to think that the universe itself can be explained simply on the basis of an efficient cause. But that's like saying that a Model T is explained either by Henry Ford or the laws of engineering. You need both to fully make sense of a Model T. So this is simplistic. Maybe he should have read more philosophy. I've got some questions for Hawking. 
One is, what does he mean when he says something like the law of gravity? Now, a lot of the news reports I read uh, prior to purchasing the book basically said, Hawking says, because the law of gravity exists, the universe can and will create itself out of nothing. Actually, it reads something like the law of gravity. So I want to know, is, the law, is it the law of gravity, or is it something else kind of like it? If something else, what else? I want to know, is there gravity or just the law of gravity? Because he's already told us that, that scientists express the law in a mathematical formula. And if it is gravity, how does gravity work without matter? I can understand how, we, how gravity works when two objects operate upon one another, but I don't get how Without matter, gravity causes matter. I don't think anybody else does either. What does he mean when he says nothing? Is nothing a little something? How is either a law of gravity or a law like gravity nothing? It's at least abstract, right? It involves numbers. Is this nothing a quantum vacuum? I'm suspicious that it is. But how is a quantum vacuum nothing? Now, a quantum vacuum's as little something as we can have. It's the lowest possible energy state, but that's not the same thing as no energy state. So these are questions that puzzle me, that I find his thoughts unsatisfying when I read the book. But here's my real problem the logical issues. If I say X creates Y, then I presuppose the existence of X to create Y. But what creates X? It's logically impossible for a cause to bring about an effect without being in existence. A natural law depends upon nature existing. It also depends upon observation by Hawking's own definition but who observed this law before the universe existed. And how can a mathematical formula cause anything? You know, what causal property does the number five possess? Or the number five with really complicated mathematics, what causal properties can that formula possess? Well, here's what the Oxford uh, mathematician and philosopher uh, John Lennox says, he says, nonsense remains nonsense even when taught by world-famous scientists. <laughs> now here's my fear, that even though nonsense remains nonsense when taught by world-famous scientists, people will accept it on the basis of that person's authority and reputation. I found that to be the case. Uh, once I walked across the stage and had my PhD, it was like my brain grew. Uh, people just thought I was smarter than I was the day before. Um, now, that doesn't mean they thought I was very smart, but I was smarter, okay? But what about the multiverse? He talks about the multiverse or universe ensemble. Well, let's cut to the chase. A multiverse or universe ensemble would not disprove God. Now, this is not what philosophers are talking about when we say possible worlds. That's modal logic. 
But I'm wondering, is the multiverse fine-tuned? If so, who fine-tuned it? How did it get that way? But the truly troubling thing is that the multiverse, is, the other universes in the multiverse cannot be observed, ever, possibly, because if we observe it, it's this universe. That means that the multiverse hypothesis, if you want to give it the name hypothesis, it may be better called a conjecture, is not falsifiable. But when I was editing the intelligent design book, I heard over and over that it's not science if it's not falsifiable. Furthermore, the multiverse is not simple. Uh, scientists judge a hypothesis or an explanation as to how good it is by how simple it is. You know, the simpler solution is preferable. One God, 500 million universes, that seems pretty obvious. But you can't even make predictions from the multiverse. And that's another criteria by which, uh, criterion by which uh, scientific hypotheses are uh, assessed. So it's not observable, it's not falsifiable, it's not simple. You can't make predictions from it. It's not faring very well. He wants to go into M-theory, which is a more complicated theory than multiverse based on string theory. And here's what his former collaborator and atheist friend Roger Penrose says about the grand design. He says the book is a bit misleading. It gives you this impression of a theory that is going to explain everything. It's nothing of the sort. It's not even a theory. He says this about M-theory. M-theory is, is a theoretical group of explanation, uh, possible theories. He says this, various remarkable mathematical developments have indeed come out of string theoretic and related ideas. However, I remain profoundly unconvinced they are very much other than just striking pieces of mathematics, albeit with input from some deep physical ideas. So what he's saying is the math is really cool, but I'm not sure there's any reference to it. And then I was just stunned near the end of the book when I read this. Hawking says on 172, it's reasonable to ask who or what created the universe. But if the answer is God, then the question has merely been deflected to that of who created God. Dawkins says this over and over again. This is probably the most common thing we hear today uh, from, from atheists. And it's just silly. Here's what uh, agnostic or atheist, he calls himself atheist on some days, agnostics on others. I guess he's atheist on days that start with T. Uh, Michael Ruse, uh, who was also a Greer Heard Forum guest, he said this, if God caused the world, what caused God? The standard reply is that God needs no cause because he is a necessary being, eternal outside time. Just as two plus two equals four is uncaused and always true, so is God's existence. Now, you might want to worry about the notion of necessary existence, but at least you should know that it is something to worry about. And if you are going to reject the notion, then you must yourself address the key question behind the proof, the question that Martin Heidegger, another atheist philosopher, said was the fundamental question of metaphysics, why is there something rather than nothing? If not God, 
then what? And so we, we see that. Let's briefly look at Richard Dawkins. I'll, I'll rush through this. Here's uh, page five of The God Delusion. Dawkins says, if this book works as I intend, religious readers who open it will be atheists when they put it down. There's another mark of religion, evangelism. Uh, <laughs> it was really interesting to me when I, when I read Dawkins' book, his discussion of the anthropic principle, because I didn't think he was getting it right. Now, the anthropic principle is an idea Brandon Carter came up with, uh, and I, I don't have time to explain it if you're not familiar with it, and maybe in the Q&A. Uh, but in The God Delusion, Dawkins says that the anthropic principle is an alternative explanation to design. Let me say quickly, there are multiple anthropic principles. Some of them are, not all of them. But he, he mentions, he points readers, he recommends this book, uh, the Anthropic Cosmological Principle by John Barrow and Frank Tipler, two physicists. And he says, a number of amazing coincidences have to be extremely fine-tuned for life to be possible anywhere in the universe, and especially on Earth. It appears that the fabric of life was made for humans. And then he said, and, and Hawking's deals with, Hawking deals with this as well. Well, what he, he mentions this book. Interestingly enough, Frank Tipler is a friend of mine. He teaches at Tulane University, located in New Orleans, where I teach. And I've read a good bit of the book. Now, the book is long and complicated. And I, I wonder if Dawkins recommends the book because he figures nobody will read that book. And, and once you get up to about 600, I mean, the math is good. It's, it starts off gentle. It's well-written, good description. But these guys are physicists, and at some point, they just can't help themselves. They have to do really complicated math. I'm talking about the kinds of math with no numerals. <laughs> and so I read it as far as I could go. And so I emailed Frank, because I, 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 and here's, I, this is part of the email. So I asked Frank, are you arguing that the Big Bang or the singularity arises out of literal nothingness? See, there's a chapter in the book that Dawkins recommended, so I guess it's atheist-friendly. It's entitled Creation Out of Nothing, Creation Ex Nihilo. Are you arguing that it arises out of literal nothing, nothingness, that it arises, or that it arises out of what appears to be literally nothing, but is actually not nothing, or that it may be or may not be out of literal nothingness. The longer I typed, the more paranoid I got. <laughs> and here's what the author of the book that Dawkins recommended emailed me back. This is exact, and I haven't changed anything in this except the ellipsis. Uh, I took out some stuff in the middle, was it not related to the conversation. This is exactly in caps, Tipler, what physics shows to be the case. Before the singularity, there was nothingness. This is literal nothingness. There was no space, no time, no matter, no nothing. He's good at math, not English. The initial singularity does not arise out of anything. And let's look at the God delusion's central argument. Dawkins is proud of this. He says, one of the greatest challenges to the human intellect has been to explain how the complex and probable appearance of design in the universe arises. The natural temptation is to attribute the appearance of design to actual design itself. The temptation is a false one because the designer hypothesis immediately raises the larger problem 
of who designated the designer. We're back to that trite true. Yeah, it's not truism, it's just a silly statement. The most ingenious and powerful explanation of design is Darwinian evolution by natural selection. Fine. That deals with biology. There's a lot more in this universe than biology. Five, we don't have an equivalent explanation for physics. Six, we should not give up the hope of a better explanation arising in physics, something as powerful as Darwinism is for biology. Now, he's the guy that complained about faith being without evidence. We're just going to hope. Therefore, God almost certainly does not exist. So what, what should we think of it? Well, the argument is invalid. That means that the form is flawed. The conclusion does not follow from the premises. And that's all you need to, to realize that's not a good argument. It fails formally. At least one of the premises, premise three, is obviously false. We simply don't have to explain the explanation. You know, if we had to explain every explanation, we'd be in an infinite regress. We could never explain anything. So this argument not only fails formally, it fails substantially, and those are all the ways you can fail, so it fails in every way an argument can fail. <laughs> Furthermore, Dawkins insists that if God exists, then he has to be at least as complex as the universe, and thus the explanation of God is no explanation. Well, this is confused. There's no reason to think such a thing concerning God. God is metaphysically simple, as in an unembodied mind. He has no parts, but he may have highly complex ideas. See, Dawkins seems, in my view, to confuse an idea with the being that has the idea that you can't have a complex idea without being a complex being. God is as simple as an explanation can be. Now here's something I think is revealing. Now this is weird, okay? You, you, but it's cool weird, okay? It's not, it's not weird like the you know, kid that picks his nose and eats it, okay? Um, <laughs> what was his conclusion? Let's, Therefore, God, what? Almost certainly does not exist. Almost. Not certainly doesn't exist. The buses say God probably doesn't exist. So let's look at this ontological argument. It is possible that a maximally great being exists. Now, I don't have time to explain all of this to you, that, but... Question uh, premises two through five are conditionals. If it's possible that a maximally great being exists, then a maximally great being exists in some possible world. If a maximally great being exists in some possible world, then it exists in every possible world. If a maximally great being exists in every possible world, then it exists in the actual world. If a maximally great being exists in the actual world, then a maximally great being exists. Therefore, a maximally great being exists. Now, premises two through six are simply doing logic. They're not debatable, or the whole project of modal logic is a failure. The only questionable premise is one, 
and Dawkins has already granted it. If he's really logical, he should believe it. But he doesn't. And that leads us back to where Dallas Willard ended. Most of the problems of the human heart, of the human existence, are problems of the heart, not the head. I think that's what Pascal was about with the wager. Anybody would make that bet, but not everybody does. That means it's not a rational problem, it's a problem of the heart. And that means that we have to do what Dallas talked about earlier. Yes, we have to have arguments, but if we don't couch the arguments with Christian concern, with Christian spirituality, genuine, deep, life-changing devotion to Christ, we won't be effective as apologists. So, thank you for your time. I'll be here to take questions. I think I've gone a few minutes over. I appreciate your patience. I'll gladly answer all your questions. Thanks for having me. Biola University offers a variety of biblically-centered degree programs, ranging from business to ministry to the arts and sciences. Visit biola.edu to find out how Biola could make a difference in your life.